Good morning, church. I want to thank Jeff and the elders for giving me the opportunity to speak to you today. My name is Matthew Bartowell. Some of you know me, been here for many, many years. I am an English professor at Missouri Baptist University, so if this seems a little bit like a lecture, that's because it's a lot like a lecture. You're going to learn a little bit of literature today. Um, I can't help myself, but you also get um, a lot of Bible. So if you want to open with me to 1 John, we'll spend most of the time in that book and kind of leafing back and forth a little bit, and I've got some slides here, but let's bow and pray. Dear God, we thank you for this morning. And we ask you that your word would speak to us, that you would open our hearts to receive your truth, and that you would convict us and move us to love the truth and move toward it um, rather than love ourselves and stay where we are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as many of you know, we're reading through Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly. And this isn't exactly a chapter from that book. It's sort of an interlude in between chapters. And, um, but it is about one of the major premises of the book. One of the implicit ideas in the book is that um, we are wrong about something, right? We're wrong about God. Um, we're wrong about the way we view him. We're wrong about what he does and who he is. Otherwise, why write the book, right? Why, there's, there's a correction that's trying to happen through that book. And uh, that's a little funny because we really hate being wrong, don't we? Um, think about this. Here's a little thought experiment for you. When's the last time you had an argument with somebody and the argument ended with either of you saying, you know what, you're right. I was wrong. I am now persuaded by what you said. Why are we laughing about that, right? Why, that, that's such a rare thing. Think about even Facebook arguments can count, okay? How often do you ever see that? Somebody, you know what, all this screed you just wrote me, I'm persuaded. It's very rare. Why do we hate being wrong so much? Um, well, I've got some unpleasant news for you this morning. Okay, bear with me. But here's what the message is about. It's about the joy of being wrong. But before you can experience the joy of being wrong, you have to realize that you are wrong. You're wrong about something. And it's important. Okay? It's not a little thing. Like, I was wrong this year about the Dolphins being a playoff team. Okay? But that's a small thing. I'm also wrong about big things. I'm wrong too. We're all in the same boat here. We're all wrong. But it's okay. And it, it's okay because God doesn't love you because you're right. God's love for you goes beyond that. It's not about being right or wrong. It's okay because when we realize that we are wrong, we then have the opportunity to repent. And I think often we think about being wrong and we think about repentance as something that we did way back before we were Christians, right? I, I was wrong once, now I'm right. I repented once, I no longer have to. I'm a Christian. But we're wrong even as Christians. Look at how we hurt each other. Look at how we make mistakes. Two Christians disagree. They can't both be right. Somebody's wrong. Maybe both of them are wrong, okay? So we're wrong even as Christians, and we need to repent even as Christians. And repentance is not a sad thing, or like, oh gosh, now I have to do this, this uh, penance or something. It's a joyful thing because repentance helps us to reorient our loves. When we don't love adequately, we're wrong. And so repentance helps us to restructure that, 
to rearrange that. So those are the things that I want to stress today in the passages we're going to look at. You are wrong. It's okay because you can repent. And repentance is joyful because it helps you reorder your loves. Let's take a look at 1 John 1, 5 through 10. And I'm just going to look back at this with you. Okay. Um, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So the first thing I want to draw your attention to is this image of light and darkness. This is a really prominent image for John in the gospel and in his epistles. Think about the first chapter of John. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is light in him is the light of all men. He comes into the darkness, but the darkness doesn't recognize it. And then we get here. We must walk in the light and not walk in the darkness. Those are our two choices. We walk in the light. We walk in the darkness. But what do those things mean? What is the light and what is the darkness? I think sometimes when we gloss over this quickly, perhaps out of context, we think the light is always doing the right thing, right? Stay on the straight and narrow path. Don't sin and you're walking in the light. It doesn't seem to me that that's what this passage is saying. Because why would it say in verse 7 that if you walk in the light, Jesus will purify you from your sin? Right? The sin is implied. Now, John does not want us to go on sinning. And he will go on to say, I say this to you so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, Jesus will forgive you when we repent and walk in the light. So walking in the light and walking in the darkness seems to be placed on this spectrum of acknowledging what we do wrong so that God can forgive us. Look at the passage in verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves ourselves and the truth is not in us. So the darkness then seems to be aligned with the claim that we are without sin. We walk in the darkness when we claim we're not wrong. And also notice this passage here in verse 7 again, we have fellowship with one another. So there's something about the people of God that is the light. And this makes sense, right? Jesus is the light. He comes into the world we are like him, he gives us his light, and then we, the people of God, shine that light into a dark world that needs it. So when we walk in the light, we have fellowship with each other. It is a constituting thing that makes us God's people. The admission that we are wrong is an essential feature of what it means to be God's church so that we can see where we are. And that's what John says in chapter two. He says, if you walk around in the darkness, you're not going to be able to see where you're going. The light shows you where you are. It shows you where you are going. And it shows you where you need to go. Jesus tells a parable about this in Luke. And again, I will step aside so we can look at this. So he, notice he addresses this parable 
to some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So, two different kinds of people. I would like to suggest one walking in the light, one walking in the darkness. The Pharisee is our representative of somebody who's confident in his own righteousness, and he's walking in the darkness, and what does he do? The first thing he does is he compares himself, right? He's, com he's comparing himself favorably to other people. This is a very tempting thing to do, right? We aren't wrong relative to that guy, you know? I disagree with, uh, you know, I, I don't think I'm wrong. I don't feel like I'm wrong. It's funny. I rarely feel like I'm wrong. And the people I listen to all agree with me. You know, I'll go on Facebook and I'll post a little thing about some horrible thing that happened to me and how terrible people are. And all my friends will in the comments say, you're so right. You, you, how could anyone be like that to you? Um, we, we live in these little bubbles where we reinforce our sense of rightness based on comparison all the time, right? And so that contributes to that darkness, that walking in the darkness. And then he points out these external things he does. So I give a tenth of everything I own. I fast. These are external things. They don't reflect his heart. So he's comparing himself, and then he's pointing to the things he does that he thinks justify him to make him righteous. But the irony here is, of course, what Jesus tells us. This man did not go home justified. The other guy went home justified. And all he could say was, have mercy on me, a sinner. So the difference, I mean, there's, there's many things we could say about this, but the thing I'd like to emphasize here is the tax collector was walking in the light to the extent that he knew where he was. And he knew where he needed to be. He saw the gap between those two places, and he was contrite. And he begged God for mercy. And then Jesus tells us the truth. That the humble will be exalted and the proud will be brought low. So this raises another point. Realizing that we're wrong is about humility. Isn't it? Just being able to look at ourselves soberly. See ourselves as we really are. So that we can see where we need to go. So, alright. You're wrong We've established this, right? About something. I don't know what. Maybe you don't know what. But I believe that God will show you what. I think God has started good works in us that he will bring to completion. And part of that process is revealing to us where we are wrong so that we can make this correction. So this brings us to the next point. Being wrong is okay. God's grace can cover even our wrongness. It's funny to think about that. You know, we, ha we think we have to have everything right. The, the sin is one thing, but being wrong is a different thing. So we can repent and think about the way we think about repentance. It's usually something that we think about as unpleasant. I have to stop doing this thing that I enjoy and then start doing this thing that seems very boring to me. 
But that's because our loves are all out of whack, which we'll get to in a minute. But take a look at the way Paul describes repentance here. You all know this passage, I'm sure, in 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 11. See if you can notice the joy of being wrong in this vision of godly sorrow that Paul shows us. He says, even if my letter caused you sorrow, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. So Paul says, godly sorrow leads to repentance, which leads to life. Worldly sorrow leads to death. Those are the choices. And notice the descriptors he uses for repentance here. What eagerness, what earnestness to clear yourself. So I want to ask you to, to think about your past and think about a time when you were happy to have been wrong. Do you have a reference point for that somewhere? I was talking about this with students and with Rachel the other day, and she's like, yeah, like when you think something terrible is going to happen, it doesn't happen. And that's true, right? That's a good example of being wrong and being happy that we were wrong. But could you think about a time where reality was worse than you feared and you were happy to realize that? I wonder if you could think of it. I have a little reference point for this. So when we lived in Florida, we used to sing. Rachel has an absolutely beautiful voice. Not so much for me. But you didn't need that because we're singing four-part harmony and anyone can learn four-part harmony, right? So we would go to the, the music, the practices, and we would sing. And I didn't view myself as a singer, as I'm not. And uh, they would teach us the parts. And if I got something wrong, somebody would say, hey, you're off here. Sing it this way. And since I didn't view myself as a singer, I was happy to know that because I just wanted the song to sound good. You know, if you hear really good four-part harmony, you know how beautiful that can be. But then some folks who did see themselves as singers would be a little put off by that because they didn't want to be wrong. Their identity was wrapped up in it. Now, that doesn't mean I'm always like that, okay, because there was one time my cousin tried to correct me on the definition of a literary device, and I lost my mind. I was like, how, no, that can't. How could I be wrong about this? This is who I am. And he was like, well, I don't know what to tell you. Um, so he was right, by the way, and I was wrong, and I learned something. But the point there was, since it was so much a part of my identity, I took offense. I didn't care about the truth. I cared about myself, and I wanted to be right, and I didn't want to learn the thing that was actually the real way of thinking about it. So, so the joy of being wrong, I think, and the repentance that we get from it will come when we don't have our identity so caught up in whatever it is we need to be right about. And we can see the truth and love the truth more than we love ourselves. So here's another hopeful thing. Okay? I know I've told everybody in this room that they're wrong. But I'm wrong too, remember. And so here is a passage in 1 John 2, 7 through 8. I think there's hope here. Let's see if we can find it. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command, 
its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. So remember what John's image of this light is. It is Jesus. Jesus comes into the world and he shines his light and that light is in us. It's the light of mankind. And as God's people, we shine that light as well. And the promise here is that the darkness is passing. The true light is already shining and will get stronger and will overwhelm the darkness. So that repentance will lead to beautiful, beautiful things for us when we accept it. And I think that could be this moment where you would be happy to have been wrong because you will know now the right thing to do and you will have corrected something that is life-giving to you. Okay, so here's the literature part, and I want to move on to this last point. So we said we're wrong. We said it's okay because we can repent, and then we lastly said repentance can help us reorder and restructure our loves. And so I want to share a little bit with you about this story that I read with my students every semester. It's a Russian story by Tolstoy. It's called The Death of Ivan Ilyich. Anybody ever read it? Ah, my wife has read it. Oh, I'm so proud. Um, well, but you're going to get a little bit of it today, and it's a good holiday read, so you might as well read it. Um, okay, so before that, let's just establish this idea of ordered loves. You can have your loves ordered properly, or they can be disordered. It's something we talk about sometimes when we talk about Augustine's confessions. He talks about loving the wrong thing in the wrong way, in the, out of order. So you, you have your list of things that you love, and you've put the wrong thing on top, and you've put the right things below it. And just think about all the different things that we can use the word love for. Okay? I could love my dog. I could love ice cream. I could love my wife. Okay, those are three things. Dog, ice cream, wife. What order should they be in? My students were like, ice cream. <laughs> then your dog. They're being irritating. But... Um, my wife should go first, ice cream, you know, dog, probably ice cream, right? Is that the agreed upon order? Um, so if you saw my wife, and I'm getting this illustration from Alden Bass, by the way, I want to give proper attribution. If you saw my wife holding an ice cream cone, and I pushed her down and took it from her, you would say, something is seriously wrong with you. You've got your loves all out of whack, and you'd be right to say that, right? So the idea of ordinate love, or properly ordering your loves, is having them in the right place. And so um, I want to talk to you about a character here. His name is Ivan Ilyich, who had his loves all in the wrong place. And maybe you can reflect on yourself, think about what your order of loves are, if we're being honest, and how we ought to restructure that. So this is, a, a, this is the first story that Tolstoy wrote after his conversion to Christianity. So it is really, it's beautiful, and it's filled with a lot of, that young fervor of a new convert. Ivan Ilyich is a Russian, sort of middle class, maybe shading into the aristocracy, and he has ordered his life all around pleasantness. Whatever is the most pleasant. Does that sound familiar? Do we do this? Maybe we do. And so he just wants to get the right job so that he can get the money he needs so he can live a pleasant life. He wants to decorate his house a particular way. He doesn't want to feel any discomfort. He wants to have enough food, all that stuff. Very relatable. But he's put pleasantness on top. And then he gets married because it serves the pleasantness. 
And then he has the job because it serves the pleasantness. And we'll see where this leads him. We can even see where it leads him in his morals. So what I've put up here on, on the screen is this passage about him and his youth. He's going to law school, and he is um, trying to figure out the way the world works. So it says, at law school, he had done things that previously had seemed to him quite vile, and he had filled him with self-disgust when he did them. But later, seeing these things were done by people in high positions and were not thought by them to be bad, he didn't quite think of them as good, but completely forgot about them and wasn't at all troubled by memories of them. So notice what Ivan is doing. He's comparing himself, right? So he wants a certain sort of lifestyle. He sees the people who have that lifestyle. And while I'm doing these things I feel guilty about, but I also see the people who have this lifestyle that I want doing them. And they can still have the pleasantness. So why shouldn't I do them? It's really okay. It doesn't inhibit me. It doesn't stop me from getting what's on top. That is that pleasantness. And so you could see that moral decay start to creep in because of that comparison, just like the Pharisee from, from Luke. And the thing that happens with Ivan, he even gets married this way. So he, he finds a girl. She's sort of the right status. Her, the people in her life, in his life, agree that she's a good match for him. And so Tolstoy tell us, tells us that so he got married. Right? He, he kind of liked her, but also the right people thought it was a good match. So pleasantness goes there. And then he quickly finds out that married life does not always facilitate pleasantness. Sometimes you have arguments, and then maybe you'll have children, and then there's demands that are placed on your time and your energies. And because Ivan has structured his life in such a way that he does not want to do anything that will make his life unpleasant, he withdraws. He goes to work. He leaves his wife at home, and he just doesn't give to her the compassion and the partnership that she needs from him. And in the process, he's also teaching her that that's what he wants. So she's like, fine, I'll, I'll find something to occupy myself with. And she throws herself into her social life. But then, one day, Ivan is decorating the house. And he's trying to hang curtains. And he's on a ladder, and he slips, and he falls, and he knocks his side into a knob on the window. And strange as it seems... That is a fatal injury. He injures something inside him that only gets worse and worse. Now, Tolstoy uses this as a symbol for mortality. Right? It's not a sickness that he's going to get better from. It is death. It is mortality which we all will have to face. And so there's no getting rid of it. It's a, it starts as a nagging pain, and then it builds, and it, it ruins the pleasantness. It takes away all of the things in his life that he had ordered the way he had, had put it, pleasantness and, and the job and all of that. And he begins to demand compassion from people, but he's already taught them that's not the way the relationship works with Ivan Ilyich. So they have no compassion for him. And then he starts to grapple with this reality of his own death and how he's distracted himself from things that are really important. And here's what he says next. But if I could just understand why, that too I can't. I might be able to explain it if I said I had lived not as I should have, but it's impossible to admit that, he said to himself, remembering all the lawfulness, all the correctness, all the decorum of his life. It's impossible to admit that now, he said to himself, grimacing with his lips 
as if anyone could see this smile and be deceived by it. So really the alternative to being honest about being wrong is not actually being right. It is just self-deception. You're just deceiving yourself. In this case, Ivan has cultivated his life around this for such a long time that even as he's lying on his couch, thinking through this in his mind, he smiles like an everything is okay smile for nobody. There's nobody there to see it. The only person he's deceiving is himself. And I think it's very interesting to wonder why he says, if only I could admit that I had done something wrong, then I could understand why I'm dying. But he can't understand that. It's an interesting connection. Here's another one. So Ivan begins to die. Actually, like he's in the death throes of his life. And he starts to let those distractions fall away and really contemplate things. And he does experience this little moment of repentance, this little moment of grace at the end of his life. So suddenly, some kind of force struck him in the chest and on the side. His breath was constricted even more. He collapsed into the hole that is the hole of death, you know, dying. And there at the bottom of the hole, some light was showing. There happened to him what he used to experience in a railway carriage when you think you are going forward but are going backward and suddenly realize your true direction. Yes, everything was wrong, he said to himself, but it doesn't matter. I can, I can do what is right. But what is right, he asked himself, and at once fell silent. I love the image of the, the railway carriage, and, and maybe you've experienced this. You're in a train, and you start to move, and for a moment it takes you a second to realize which direction you're going in, and then you get oriented properly and you realize which way you're going. That's what walking in the light is, isn't it? It's that reorienting moment. Repentance is that reorienting moment that shows us where we were really going all this time and the proper direction. And that's what he's experiencing here. He admits in this moment, yes, not just some things were wrong, not just minor things were wrong, everything was wrong. But it doesn't matter, I can still do what is right. So, what is right? In this moment, he goes through this terrible agony of death, and his son and wife come into the room, and he sees them weeping. And his son, he's kind of flailing in his pain, his son catches his hand and kisses his hand. So there's a moment of grace for Ivan as he's dying. Ivan looks at him, and it all kind of clicks into place here. And he's able to ask for forgiveness from them. He's so weak, he can't actually say the whole word forgive, so all he can say is give, which I think is an interesting choice. The thing he's been withholding from them, all he can muster is this word give. And then he lets go, really. He, he stops fighting his mortality. He stops fighting the truth. And he realizes that in letting go, he is helping them in a way, and I know this can be sometimes difficult, not to suffer, watching him suffer. He's not clinging on to this um, the deceitfulness that his life is really going to get better. He knows he's, he's dying. And here's what it says. After he does that, he searched for his old habitual fear of death and didn't find it. Where was death? What death? There was no fear because there was no death. Instead of death, there was light. So that's it, he suddenly said aloud. Such joy. After he's able to show love for his family, he sees that light. And I think it's really interesting to think about him saying to himself, 
there is no death as he's dying, right? So what could he possibly mean by this? He is dying. It's not a, a metaphor. He's really dying in real life. But he says there is no death. All that remained was light. Well, I'm going to show you what I think about this. And I'm getting this from a book by Karen Swallow Pryor. It's called On Reading Well. Excellent little book on uh, the moral components of literature. Take a look at this passage from, again, from 1 John. For this message is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. So we've said we're wrong. It's okay because we can repent. Repentance helps us to reorder our loves, to rediscover what the proper order of those loves should be. But think about this passage. What does it mean when John says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other? That's what Ivan is experiencing. He's, he knows he's dying, but really there is no death. There's just the light, the light of Christ, the light of the people of God, connecting that all together with what we've already said. And here's what Pryor says. She says that love, and not just niceness, okay? It's not just like being nice to people. We're talking about love, a real self-sacrificial, the love of God for us that died for us, that was resurrected for us so that we could be resurrected. That kind of love shows that we are not just moving towards death, that there is something else. And why would it do that? Because it doesn't come from us. It doesn't originate with us. We can't love that way naturally. That love, if we show it, has come from God. It's supernatural. It's divine. If it's in us, it could only be there because it was put there by God. And if that's true, then we have passed from death to life, haven't we? And for Ivan uh, says the same thing. There is no death. There's only light. And so, reordering those loves... Being able to love as God did, sacrificially. One of the beautiful things that we get from repentance. So, you might get some opportunities, by the way, to admit that you're wrong this week. Sitting around the Thanksgiving table. Everybody's gearing up for the argument they might have with that cantankerous uncle. Well, maybe you'll be able to be honest about where you're wrong. That's a start, okay? And... I just ask that you reflect on this. Be open to it. Be open to letting God show you where you're wrong. Don't resist it. And repent. And let your loves be healed by that. Right? That is, there's healing in that. There's light in that. There's, there's so much we can get from that. So that's my prayer for us as we go out. And as we continue with Dane Orland's book, we can continue to just be okay with the fact of being wrong. You know, our culture is a very tough one to be wrong in these days. Um, but it doesn't have to be. And if it's ever not going to be that way, it's going to be because the church showed the world how to do it. So I hope that we can be that for the world. So let's, let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we thank you for your light. We thank you for Jesus. And we ask you and you to shine that light in our hearts, to show us where we are truly, 
to show us where Jesus is and to fill us with a desire to go and be with him, go where he is, to leave ourselves behind and to love you more. We pray this now for this congregation, for the church universal, for the world, that we would be a light to them. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.